The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I love Whitfield. Um, I love him because of many things. I love him for his uh, incredible, fiery zeal for the Lord, almost relentless in his service to God. He saw himself as a vessel to be poured out, and he was poured out, I mean, right to death. Uh, amazing, amazing life. His zeal for um, the conversion of lost people, his constant desire to see people repent and come to faith in Christ. Um, I love his humility. We're going to talk about that. The, he was a godly uh, and a humble man. Um, and for all of these reasons, I love him. I love him for his uh, emphasis on the sovereignty of God along with his zeal for souls. I mean, he's probably one of the best examples of how somebody who would be called a Calvinist was constantly passionate for souls. I mean, just reaching out all the time. So it's a fallacy that people think if you emphasize the sovereignty of God and salvation, you'll be lazy in evangelism. That's simply untrue. And Whitfield is one of the best examples of somebody who is passionate for souls while at the same time maintaining um, reformed uh, theology or an emphasis on the sovereignty of God. I want to begin with an, uh, a testimony uh, of Nathan Cole, who was a farmer and a carpenter of Kensington Parish in Berlin, Connecticut. And uh, he lived about 12 miles from Middleton where George Whitfield was to preach on October 23, 1740. Now, you have to understand about Whitfield. About this time, he was the most famous person in the colonies, except maybe the king. I mean, everybody had heard about this guy. He was everywhere. And it got to the point, by the time he was done with his life and his ministry, where perhaps 80% of the colonists, people who lived in the colonies, had heard him preach. Just unbelievable, the amount of preaching he did. So he was well known. And already by this time, in 1740, October 23, 1740, the revival known as the Great Awakening was going on full force. So Nathan Cole is working in his field, and this is what it says. I was in my field at work. I dropped my tool that I had in my hand and ran home to my wife, telling her to make ready to go and hear Mr. Whitfield preach at Middletown. Then run to my pastor for my horse with all my might, fearing that I should be too late. So this guy's in the middle of his work day, and he hears that Whitfield's preaching in Middleton, and he runs for his horse. As I came near the road, I heard a noise, something like a low rumbling thunder, and presently found it was the noise of horses' feet coming down the road. So he was not the only one who had this same idea. So it sounds like thunder, a rumbling thunder. Every horse seemed to go with all his might to carry his rider to hear news from heaven for the saving of souls. It made me tremble. So you can imagine all the horses pounding down the road, and he's, he's going too. I turned and looked toward the Great River, the Connecticut River, and saw the ferry boats running swift backward and forward, bringing over loads of people. The land and banks over the river looked black with people and horses. All along the 12 miles, I saw no man at work in his field, but all seemed to be gone. Then I saw Mr. Whitfield come upon the scaffold. He looked almost angelical, a young, slim, slender youth, before some thousands of people with a bold, undaunted countenance. And my hearing how God was with him everywhere as he came along, it solemnized my mind and put me into a trembling fear before he began to preach. For he looked as if he was clothed with authority from the great God, and a sweet, solemn solemnity sat upon his brow. 
and my hearing him preach gave my gave me a heart wound. He calls it a heart wound. By God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up, and I saw that my righteousness would not save me. Isn't that powerful? Now it's interesting. What is the effect on his heart as he's approaching and coming to coming to hear the preaching of seeing thousands of other people to go hear him? Now, what what is going on in his mind as he's going to hear Whitfield preach? He's got a certain expect, expectancy, doesn't he? Something has something's working expectancy in his heart. What are the things that contributed to the expectancy at that point? His reputation. So he'd heard about Whitfield. Whitfield was famous. Uh, what had he heard about Whitfield? Right. So he'd heard that God's hand was on him, and so he went there expecting to see God's hand move, and also that he would per, per, perhaps himself receive a blessing from it. And so he comes up over the hill and sees thousands of other people. So only God could do this. He's thinking that God is assembling all these people and he just wants some of it. He wants to be like feeding the 5,000. He wants to be one of the 5,000 that gets something that day. And he did. Now, what did he get out of his preaching? What was the bottom line on his preaching? Is that an important issue? <laughs> I really think there's only two ways of looking at salvation. You know, one of them is basically trusting in your own righteousness through certain achievements of your own or looking to Christ and him alone. Those are the two options. I know of no other. There's many flavors of that. There's Buddhist and Hindu and, and Islamic and atheistic, basically good person kind of approach. There's all that. And then there's grace. And I know of no other. You're either looking inward or you're looking to Christ, ultimately. And so this man found that he had been looking inward. He had a foundation to his righteousness. And it was his own good deeds. And it was totally broken apart. Whitfield preached the new birth. That's what he preached. He preached that salvation was a miracle from God. A miracle from God. And so it is. And in that preaching, uh, he shook up the world, basically turned it upside down. So he's the one that we're going to look at. Now, I've given you a more extensive timeline for Whitfield's life. And what I propose to do is just kind of go through it um, a little bit now and give you a sense of the activity and the energy of Whitfield. And then we're going to zero in on certain aspects. He was born in 1714, December 16th at Bell, uh, Bell Inn, Gloucester. His father was an innkeeper. And, uh, you know, that is kind of low, just like Bunyan. Remember what Bunyan's father was? What was Bunyan and his father? Both the same thing. What were they? They were tinkers. That's kind of blue collar. So also an innkeeper, okay? What's an inn? I mean, what was an inn back then? It was a bar. Yeah, it was a motel and a bar and a restaurant and all of those things, a place where you went and got some ale or whatever. And uh, so an innkeeper's son was kind of on the lower rung of society. He was not uh, one of the upper crust people. So he was a common laborer. Now, in 1726, when he's 12 years old, he's sent to St. Mary de Crypt School in Gloucester. He's born in Gloucester, England. That's where he lived. Uh, he's sent to the school. Um, a f like about a year later, after he's begun his education, he has to come back um, and work at the... At the um, in basically serving alcoholic beverages. He was a bartender, uh, basically, uh, because his father, I forget, either he took Ill, uh, Ill or, or died at that point, but he had to leave his education. So he's this common working class boy. And he, you know, gave out alcoholic beverages to people. Uh, when he was 17, in 1732, when he was 17 years old, he became a servitor at Pembroke College in Oxford. Now, what this meant was, realize again, we've got the class system in England. That means he's basically a blue-collar guy who's been selected to go to Oxford. And he, in that situation, he's going to be serving the higher class students, 
You see what I'm saying? He would work his way through college by acting as a servant to the higher class students. So he was a humble guy and just he was very zealous to make a good impression at Oxford and to get a good education. Uh, he was a serious-minded person. Now, at that uh, point, in 1733, he was introduced to the Oxford Holy Club. Now, you probably never heard of the Oxford Holy Club, but what the Holy Club was was a group of, of uh, students at Oxford that were serious about religion, and they were led by John and Charles Wesley. Now, you've heard of the Wesleys. Who are the Wesleys? Anybody tell me something about the Wesleys? They started the Methodists. Now, the the word Methodist... Just like the word Puritan and the word Anabaptist was a slur. It was basically saying they've reduced religion to a method. If you do these things, you will be religious. And that's what it was. There was no gospel in the Holy Club, none at all. It was a whole works righteousness whereby you could, through fasting and through church observances and through hard work and through helping the needy, work your way to heaven, basically. And Wesley himself would attest to that. He, he knew he had no assurance of salvation before his heart was strangely warmed at Aldersgate a number of years after that. He went as a missionary, Wesley now, John Wesley, went as a missionary to Georgia with no assurance of salvation. Fascinating story about the Moravians and about Wesley. They were on a ship. Um, John Wesley was on a ship with a group of Moravians. You remember who the Moravians are? We do the love feast every year, trying to educate the church on who the Moravians were and, and what the church history. They, these folks were amazing people coming from the German pietism background. They're on the ship. There's a storm. Now realize, I mean, these wooden ships were perilous. Crossing the Atlantic Ocean was a perilous thing. You could lose your life. And it was the middle of the storm, and these Moravians were singing hymns, just like Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. Well, John Wesley's not much feeling like singing a hymn at that particular moment. He was fearing for his eternal soul, and he had no assurance of salvation whatsoever. And when they arrived in Georgia, and he's beginning his mission work, now John Wesley, um, the leader of the Moravian group came to him individually and said, um, are you trusting Christ for your salvation? I mean, after that behavior, he was wondering. And he said, I believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And then he asked him, yes, but do you believe he saved you? And he could not answer that. He was not sure that he was saved by the blood of Jesus Christ at that particular time. Now, later on, he would come to that personal assurance. But that was the Holy Club. It was a, it was a method of religion that had to do with works and with fasting and with self-deprivation. It was almost like a kind of a Catholic monastery within the Anglican Church. They were also good students. They were hard workers. Um, they were excellent at their studies. And now realize they were all of that upper crust level. But Charles Wesley took an interest in George Whitfield, saw him to be a sober-minded, kind of a serious person who wanted to study and who was interested in religion. And he took him in and he introduced him to the Holy Club and he became uh, a member of the Oxford Holy Club. Well, at that time, he starts to um, look after his own soul. This is Whitfield now. And he begins to seek the Lord. Now, if you're in the Holy Club, how are you going to seek the Lord? Fasting and self-deprivation and, and dying to the world and all kinds of things. Now, he began um, with a significant book by Henry Skugel, a book that has influenced more people than you can imagine. The name of the book is The Life of God and the Soul of Man. Many, many English evangelicals were influenced by this book. Whitfield read the book, and he began to seek the Lord. 
And this is what it said, what he wrote in his journal. It says, God showed me that I must be born again or be damned. Now that is really the center of his message. You must be born again or you're going to be damned. The new birth and his teaching from the new birth was that it was a supernatural act of God. It was regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Could be, could not be explained any other way and had nothing to do with works. It was just something that God did. So he saw right from the beginning, and he's getting this from the scripture, I believe, but also from Skugel's book, The Life of, of uh, God and the Soul of Man. So this is what he wrote in his journal. God showed me that I must be born again or be damned. I learned that a man may go to church, say his prayers, receive the sacrament, and yet not be a Christian. How did my heart rise and shudder like a poor man that is afraid to look into his account books lest he should find himself bankrupt? Shall I burn this book? Shall I throw it down or shall I search it? I did search it. And holding the book in my hand, thus adduced the God of heaven and earth, Lord, if I'm not a Christian or if I'm not a real one, for Jesus' sake, show me what Christianity is that I may not be damned at last. God soon showed me, for in reading a few lines further, that, quote, true religion is a union of the soul with God and Christ formed within us. I'll read that again. This is Skugel writing this. True religion is a union of the soul with God and Christ formed within us. A ray of divine light was instantaneously darted in upon my soul. And from that moment, but not until then, did I know that I must become a new creature. He did not believe he had become a new creature. He just felt that he needed the new birth. But being an Oxford Holy Club member, he's going to search, uh, seek it out in the same way that Martin Luther sought it in the cloister by fasting and prayer and by deprivations. So he begins to suffer and he talks about it. It says, even some of the Holy Club thought that Whitfield went too far and they grew ashamed of him. Yet he was unmoved and spoke of his willingness to suffer and even to die. Now, I'll tell you this. One of the Holy Club members uh, a short time before that had died from all of his fasting. He just got to a point of no return. I mean, you can do yourself serious damage. And we've already seen that in our Heroes of the Faith uh, series with John Chrysostom where he just fasted and through self-deprivation so much that his health really never recovered. The same thing happened with Whitfield. He just pushed it too far. But with this other guy, it pushed it to the point of no return and he died, literally. Um, but it says, God only knows um, how many nights I have lain upon my bed groaning under the weight I felt and bidding Satan depart from me in the name of Jesus. Whole days and weeks have I spent in lying prostrate on the ground and begging for freedom from those proud, hellish thoughts that used to crowd in upon and distract my soul. By degrees, I began to leave off eating fruits and such like and gave the money I usually spent in that way to the poor. Afterward, I always chose the worst sort of food. I wore woolen gloves, a patch gown, and dirty shoes. When the Holy Spirit put into my heart good thoughts or convictions, he, Satan, always drove them to extremes. When I was advised to talk but little, Satan said I must not talk at all, so that I, who used to be the most forward in exhorting my companions, have sat whole nights almost without speaking at all. Again, when I was advised to endeavor after a silent recollection and waiting upon God, Satan told me I must leave off all forms and not use my voice in prayer at all. So here's the whole thing that Luther struggled with. What is enough? When is it enough? You're pushed right to the edge. And he's wrestling and he's struggling uh, with what he must do to be saved. Now, we've noticed this. the same thing with Bunyan. Remember, uh, uh, last week, a hundred years before this. Wrestling with what he must do to be saved. And I just think it's so strange that we don't see very much like this at all today. Very much like this at all today. 
It's just so easy and so quick to become a Christian. It really isn't much. You just go to revival, you listen to a little preaching, you walk the aisle, and that's it. You're in. There's no wrestling over these eternal issues the way there, there was back then. So he continues, My soul was inwardly supported, is his testimony, with great courage and resolution from above. Every day God made me willing to renew the combat. So he was struggling. He read Thomas a Kempis, which is my imitation of Christ. He read some other books in the Greek Testament, every reading of which I endeavored to turn into a prayer, which were a great help and assistance to me. And then finally, after much struggling, and this went on for a long time, and as I said, he broke his health and he never recovered. I mean, he died a young man. You look at the birth date and the death date. How old is he? 56 when he died. This is what it says in his journal. <clears throat> God was pleased at last to remove the heavy load to enable me to lay hold of his dear son by a living faith and by giving me the spirit of adoption to seal me even to the day of everlasting redemption. Oh, with what joy, joy unspeakable, even joy that was full of and big with glory was my soul filled when the weight of sin went off and an abiding sense of the pardoning love of God and a full assurance of faith broke in upon my disconsolate soul. Surely it was the day of my espousals, a day to be had in everlasting remembrance. At first my joys were like the spring tide and overflowed its banks. It says here in the book, late in life, as he looked back on this momentous occasion, Whitfield declared, and this is from another journal entry, I know the place. He knows where he was. It may be superstitious, perhaps, but whenever I go to Oxford, I cannot help running back to that place where Jesus Christ first revealed himself to me and gave me the new birth. So he remembers where it was, and from then on, he never doubted his salvation. He was never troubled by it. He knew that he was saved. Now, this was his experience. This was the thing he wrestled with. And when he received it, that's what he went up and preached. That's what he went and preached, the doctrine of the new birth. Now... This may seem strange to us. You're thinking, what do all these fastings and seekings and breaking your health and all that have to do with the kingdom? It's just simply believing. But this man was under tremendous conviction of the Holy Spirit. Things were different back then. You know, and I wonder, and we've talked about it this time, why they were different. But he was saved. And it's interesting, I think that uh, J.C. Ryle, who lived a hundred and some odd years later, uh, and who was an, an Anglican bishop, uh, but evangelical, committed uh, to the Lord, knows, knows and understands the gospel. He set up the whole Holy Club group. He understood the gospel better than any of them, better than Wesley, John and Charles Wesley. He was free from his sins forever through faith in Jesus Christ, and he went and preached that. And there was a tremendous joy in his preaching that you don't find as much with Wesley. There's a burden with Wesley, and Wesley never quite felt the freedom that uh, Whitfield had, but he was saved, and that was in 1735. Now, in 1736, June 20, he's ordained to the ministry in the Anglican Church. He preached his first sermon a week later, and the sermon he preached was so powerful and effective that someone complained to the bishop that 15 people had been driven insane by his preaching. Now, what was there about Whit Whitfield's preaching? Well, let me see if I can describe it. Whitfield had a booming voice, a tremendous voice. Realize this is before the days of the PA system. So he had the ability to project his voice. At one time, it is, it's recorded that over 30,000 people could hear him. Now, could you do that with just your unaided voice, make 30,000 people hear you? But Whitfield had a tremendous voice. He also had a clear grasp of the gospel and a clear grasp of biblical language. He understood how to use biblical language. And he was very dramatic, very effective. He drew emotions out of people. And the time was right. The Holy Spirit was ready to move. England was in the throes and the kind of grips. Realize what was going on. This was the time of the Enlightenment. Remember what we learned about the Enlightenment. 
where there's human philosophy and reason working into the church and, and religion was reasonable. And in England, things were kind of kept reasonable. A kind of a reasoned, ordered faith. The deists, you know, the structure and the order of it all. The Anglicans decried what they would call enthusiasm. What an enthusiast was was someone like Whitfield who really cared about their faith, who got loud when they talked about it. And this was a threat. They said, why couldn't he leave the devil alone? Everything was quiet before he came along. Now we're all in a big uproar now that he's preaching. But that's the way it was. It was quiet. I remember seeing a film about Whitfield and the way the whole thing started was with the diary of an Anglican minister. On Tuesday, we had roast pork at so-and-so's house and it was delicious. And on it goes with his life. Not a word about the gospel ministry. Not a word about people getting saved. Just life as usual. It's very Esau-ish, which is a word that I've talked about before. Esau-ish. Built on your stomach. Built on your earthly appetites. Nothing of Christ in this guy's diary. And it went on and they were reading these things and it said the, the Christian world was in a deep slumber and it needed a loud voice to wake it up. And it was Whitfield that was a loud voice and he did wake it up. And so he preaches and he begins preaching the new birth and there's a complaint to the bishop that he drove 15 people insane. Now, I don't know if it's literally true, but at least they thought it was. Now, in 1737, he starts preaching and it's entitled in this, this is a two-volume biography. This is without question the best biography I've ever read. Two volumes, phenomenal. Extremely easy to read. Just story after story of the things. So there's no way I can do justice to all the things that happened in Whitfield's life tonight. And I'm not going to loan this out. You just have to buy it yourself. Okay, this is just too valuable to me. I'll never see it again. Um, but uh, Banner of Truth, you can get it at CBD or whatever. Just well worth the money. The vignettes, the stories, the character just comes out. And it's well-researched and footnoted coming from his, his journals. Very exciting. But one of the chapter titles is Preaching That Startled Nation. It starts in 1737. So he preaches six sermons and he also gets them published. He also starts to get an opposition, an a group of adversaries, ministers that hate him. And that's going to end up being very key. Because in the Anglican system, you have to have a minister invite you to preach in his pulpit. And so if, he were, if you're going to itinerate, if you're going to go from place to place, you have to have a, a, a minister who will invite you to come preach. Well, after a while, they didn't invite him anymore. They didn't invite him. They didn't want him to preach. And so if you look down uh, 1739 on the list after his mission to Georgia, um, he goes down to Kingswood. He feels led to preach in that area. And uh, the minister there will not open his church to him. All right, already, I mean, he's controversial. He's preaching the new birth. And they don't want him. Well, he feels led then to go reach out to the coal miners. Now, you can't imagine a tougher group of people than these coal miners. I mean, these are tough men. It's a tough life. I mean, you think about it in Pennsylvania and in other places, West Virginia, coal miners. These are tough men. All right? And they had nothing to do with religion. I mean, kind of church was an Anglican thing of kind of the upper classes. You went to Oxford to become a minister. You see what I'm saying? And to, and to be able to instruct and train the upper elites in religion. And it was a nice kind of calm arrangement. The coal miners never went to church. They had no interest in spiritual things. That was for them. There was really no hope for them in one sense. Nobody reaching out to them. Well, Whitfield cared about them. God had laid the, the coal miners on his heart. So he actually wanted to be refused by this minister so, so that he could say, I tried to preach in the church, but they didn't want me. So I went to the fields. And he went out in the fields and started preaching. And word got out that an ordained Anglican minister is going to stand up in the fields and preach to anybody who wants to come. And not just anybody, but Whitfield. They'd already heard about his name. 
And so the word got out. And let me tell you something. Five years before he preached these coal miners, they got together and ransacked this town. Just went crazy. I don't know whether it was gin that they were drinking, whatever. There was a real problem with alcohol at the point. These were like almost like a wild mass of people. Everybody was scared of them. Whitfield wasn't scared at all. He wanted to preach to them. And so the word got out and there were thousands of them, thousands of them there to listen, coming right up out of the coal mines from their day of work to hear him preach. And so he's preaching to them and he's preaching powerfully and he's preaching effectively. He's preaching about hell. He's preaching about fire, the, the eternal fire of hell. And he's preaching about redemption through, through faith in Jesus Christ. And as he's preaching, the Holy Spirit is moving powerfully. And the effects of the preaching could be seen in the tracks of the tears of these coal miners. They're, they're weeping and the coal dust is getting wiped down their face as they're crying for conviction. You could just see it right, I mean, right under their faces. And hundreds and hundreds of them, if not thousands, were converted that first day. So he begins this work of preaching, open air preaching. And it is the beginning of what we would call kind of American evangelicalism, revival preaching. It started there with the open field preaching that day. And we almost can draw a line right on through Billy Graham and right up to Billy Graham's successors from that moment on. It's been a similar approach right through the Second Great Awakening and on Billy Sunday, you know, D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday, right up until our present time. But it started there. Up until that point, you had to be in church. You come to church, whatever. From then on, they went out and they preached and they preached in these powerful ways. And it started with the coal miners there. Well, he preaches for you know, several weeks, and then he entrusts the work to Wesley, to John Wesley. Now, Wesley's an upper-crust kind of guy, but he, at this point, he'd had his heartwarming experience in Aldersgate. He'd come to faith in Christ, and he was ready for a work. And the work was open-air preaching to the coal miners in Bristol. And so he committed that work to him, and at first he was a little awkward, but then he got into it. Now, the numbers went down some. Uh, there were ten to 20,000 every time that Whitfield preached. Think about that. Ten to 20,000 standing out listening to this guy preach every time. Numbers went down to about three to 5,000 when Wesley preached, but he never preached to such a huge crowd. And this really was the beginning of Wesley's worldwide ministry, was the, um, the coal miners that were committed to him by Whitfield. He had to talk him into doing the field preaching, but once he did, he threw himself into it with characteristic zeal. Now, Wesley's a phenomenal person. I mean, really, really amazing, tireless and just had a much longer life than Whitfield and was a much better organizer than Whitfield. He organized a denomination, what we call Methodism. There's no denomination that followed Whitfield. Just a lot of people that followed him to heaven. Uh, but there was no organized denomination. Wh uh, Wesley was a tremendous organizer, but he began the preaching out there. Whitfield went to London and began preaching in the open air in London. First, he's got to find a church to turn him out. Okay, well, can I preach at a church? No way. Okay, great, I'm going to the fields. So off he goes, you know. Just looking for someone to turn him out. And, and I, basically, none of the upper crusty type, you know, Anglican ministers wanted him at this point. It was kind of like a union thing, and he was breaking all the rules. And so he preached in Moorfields uh, in London, and again, thousands and thousands of people. 1739 was an incredible year. Now, we're into 1739. I want to read some of the accounts uh, from 1739 of what happened. All right, here it is. Um, he had incredible zeal for the work and continued to preach day after day. And it's hard to explain how much preaching takes out of you. I mean, when I get done on Sunday, I, I feel like a rag wrung out, okay? Brother, Brother Melvin, you know what I'm talking about? You get done preaching. Weren't you tired when you got done preaching? Absolutely. It's tiring. Whitfield preached three or four or five times a day during that time. Day after day after day after day after day without a break. And uh, 
he talks about it here on Sunday, March 18th, that same year, 1739. It says, was taken ill for about two hours, but notwithstanding was enabled to go and preach at Hanham to more, uh, to many more than were there last Sunday. And in the afternoon, I really believe no less than 20,000 were present at Rose Green. Blessed are the eyes which see the things which we see. Surely God is with us of a truth. To behold such crowds stand about us in such awful silence, and to hear the echo of their singing run, run from one end of them to the other is a very solemn and surprising thing. My discourse continued for near an hour and a half. Not bad. An hour and a half. No one left either. No one left for, for the restaurants or whatever. They were, they were interested. At both places where about 14 pounds were collected for the orphan house, and it pleased me to see with what cheerfulness the colliers, as the coal workers, and the poor people threw in their mites. So they're contributing to the orphanage. I'll tell you about the orphanage in a minute. Then Sunday, March 25th, preached at Hanham to an even larger congregation than ever, and again in the afternoon to upwards, as was computed, of 23,000 people. 23,000. I was afterward told that those who stood farthest off could hear me very plainly. Oh, may God speak to them by His Spirit, and at the same time, uh, sorry, at the same time that he enables me to lift up my voice like a trumpet. So he's preaching. Now you wonder, where does he get the strength and the power? Listen to this. Before I went out to preach, I was very sick and weak, but power was given me from above, so that I continued preaching for an hour and a half. It rained some considerable time, but almost all were unmoved. And so I was enlarged in talking of the love and the free grace of Jesus Christ, that I could have continued my discourse till midnight. So what he's saying is there, I had no strength. I felt sick and physically unable to preach. And yet he was empowered by the Holy Spirit and by the power of Jesus Christ. And it reminds me directly of what Paul says in Colossians. It says, we proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Uh, and you see this in Whitfield's life more than just about anybody else's life in church history. Every day he poured out what he had to offer. And when he went to bed, he had nothing left. And the next day he woke up and he did it all over again. And he did it for years and years and years. Now, if you take your sheet, um, he's got some uh, quotes on the back there, the quotable Whitfield. Look on the back of the sheet. And I've put some of them in bold, Okay. Look at the third one down, the first bold one. Somebody read that. Okay, here's a guy that had the authority to say that. Okay? He said, I can't stand idleness. I can't stand waste. Waste of time. And the thing that staggers me about Whitfield is that he had a continuing abiding sense of not doing enough for Christ. I mean, every day he would say, I just did not feel that I did enough for the Lord today. And yet, a total sense of acceptance in Christ, there was no sense of earning his salvation. He was done with that. He knew that he was accepted in Christ, but there was an energy, a drive in his life that cannot be explained except by the Holy Spirit. Every day he felt that he wanted to do more for Christ uh, the next day than he had done the day before. All right. Well, he begins to make some trips to America. Now, he's already been once in 1738, and he starts a, an orphanage at that point. Uh, I'm sorry, in 1740 starts starts the orphanage. He, he makes his second trip to America, 1739, October 30th. 30th, he arrives in America for the start of the preaching that began, that became the Great Awakening. And so he would make seven trips um, to the colonies in his life. So how many ocean crossings is that? 
Well, it's 14 if he ends up in England, but he does end up in the colony, so it's 14 minus 1. 13 crossings. 13 crossings. And you think about the experience of the Moravians and Wesley and all that. These were perilous things. Some of those crossings were very difficult. 13 times he got on a sailing vessel and crossed the Atlantic Ocean. So anyway, he arrives on October 30th, and America was never the same after that. He went up and down the coast, went up and down the colonies, began preaching one, one after another. And I really believe that you can trace the origins of our denomination to Whitfield's preaching. I really think so. Because what happened was he would go and he would preach the new birth. And people would get saved. Right? And then they would start to read their Bibles. They'd go back to their churches and they'd find that their ministers were unconverted. Well, my minister hasn't experienced the new birth. So what are we going to do? That We don't want to continue in the church. Some, some of them would and they'd try to convert their minister. They'd try to preach the gospel of the minister. How do you think that went over? Not too well spiritual pride and all that kind of thing. So they say, well, we need to form our own congregation. So they did, and they'd form their own congregation, just, just regular folk, and they'd start reading the Bible, and they did not find infant baptism in the Bible, which you won't. I've looked. I haven't found it yet. I keep looking, but there's nothing in there. And so they would become Baptists. And so you've got these little congregations of Baptists all over the colonies as a result of the Great Awakening. Now, Whitfield was a baby baptizer. He was, a, he was an Anglican. But he didn't care. I mean, you know, he, all he cared about was that people were saved, that they would be born again. All right? That's not true. I mean, he cared about discipleship and about doctrine. He certainly did. But in terms of the issue of infant baptism, he said, um, and it's very interesting what he said. He said, um, all of my chicks have become ducklings. Okay? What he's talking about, chicks hate water, but the ducklings, they love the water. They're becoming Baptists, all of them. Everywhere he would go, he would preach, and he'd leave behind a wake of Baptist congregations. But it didn't trouble him much, and he just moved on. Now, of course, Wesley would not want any part of that, and he would be spreading the Methodist me uh, message. And so uh, the Methodist circuit riders and all that would come in later in American history. And so there would be infant bap baptizers among the Methodists. But the Baptists, they originally can trace their roots to uh, Whitfield's preaching. So that, I, mean, I think it's, it's really a phenomenal thing. And then after a while, those things get organized, uh, and that's where the Southern Baptist denomination come from, came from originally. They got organized for mission. That's another story for another time. But we can trace it to the original preaching of um, George Whitfield. So he goes up and down the coast. Now, when we were um, going through the church history section, you remember the time on the Great Awakening. Um, the preaching was powerful. The people were ready. Uh, there were other preachers that were preaching the Awakening. Freelinghausen, for example. Howell Harris was a Welshman. He was preaching it in England. As a matter of fact, Howell Harris was the first to preach outdoors. Uh, Whitfield got the idea from Howell Harris, amazing man. Then you've got uh, Jonathan Edwards, of course, was preaching the Great Awakening, again, before Whitfield got there. But Whitfield was by far the most effective and the most famous. Uh, he preached in Philadelphia. It wasn't long after that that he met uh, Ben Franklin, Benjamin Franklin. The two of them became very good friends. I don't know that, uh, that uh, Whitfield ever um, converted him. I think he tried. He sought to convert him. Uh, I think I have a, an account here. No, I don't, I don't have it with me. But um, talking about how the two of them were the um, uh, religious or spiritual odd couple. Okay, Ben Franklin was, what do you think he was spiritually? Deist. He was, he was an enlightenment guy. He was a scientist. He was a rationalist. You know, he's, he's not into this whole new birth thing, but he was a good businessman. And how did he make his money? How did Franklin make his money? What was he? Huh? He was an inventor, but that's not how he made his money. That's not what was his living. What, what did he do? He, yeah, he was a printer. He was a printer. And he thought, hey, wait a minute. 
You know, Whitfield's preaching to 10, 20,000 people. What if we print his sermons? What if we print his journals? What if we print, you know, let's go for it. And so the two of them got together. And they became very, very good friends. And Whitfield never stopped praying for his conversion and telling him, I'm praying for your soul. You know, are you ready for Judgment Day? And he'd scoff it and laugh it off. I told you the time, though, that he heard, that Ben Franklin heard him preaching. Whitfield, everywhere he went, he's raising money. What's he raising money for? I've already told you, the orphanage down in Georgia. He had an orphanage, and, and that was his life work. That was his charity. And everywhere he'd go, whether it would be the coal miners in England or whatever, he's raising money for the orphanage. He was fearless in asking for money. He didn't care because everybody knew it wasn't going to him. He was absolutely beyond reproach in his life, morally, in terms of money, whatever. Everybody knew that every coin went straight to the orphans. And so with that freedom, he preached boldly. You know, you need to put money. You need to be involved in this. The orphans need you, this kind of thing. Well, Franklin knew that he was going to be raising money, and, he, and the account is phenomenal. He had uh, some copper coins, some silver coins, and some gold coins in his pocket. He said he went there resolving to give him not a, not a penny. He's not going to give him anything. Well, as he continued on and he began to make his appeal, uh, he said, all right, I'll give him the copper. Well, as it continues on, he says, I'll throw in the silver too. He said, he finished with such a flourish that I felt ashamed, and I emptied my pockets into the hat as it went by. And this was Franklin. He's a hard, hard-boiled guy, but they continued on. They had a friendship, a relationship. He said, you must understand about Whitfield is that he's a genuinely good man. And that's what he said. Franklin said he was, he was kind, he was compassionate. One of the things I've noticed about Whitfield <clears throat> is his character. Realize that he had adversaries everywhere he went. People opposed him. People hated him. People were afraid of him. Uh, and there was persecution. At one point, he was attacked in his bed and almost left for dead. But God raised him up. I mean, he, there was persecution. People were um, slashing at him with knives from time to time. Uh, when he would set, when uh, at one point somebody was trying to set up a podium and, and it was a, a man and a woman comes and attacks that guy with a knife, there was just fierce opposition, just from the devil, really. And so there was a lot of it. Whitfield was uh, fearless, but there was a great deal of criticism, too. And Whitfield, one thing I learned from this Dalimore biography is Whitfield took every criticism seriously, took all of it seriously because he had a, a kind of a profound self-distrust. And he would take all of those criticisms before the Lord. And like Hezekiah with that letter from the Assyrian, he just spread it out before God. And he said, God, separate the wheat from the chaff. This was his regular habit. Because he believed in every criticism there might be something that God was saying to him. And he would take to heart the wheat and the chaff would not bother him. Now that is a godly response to criticism. And it takes a great deal of, of humility to do that. And he's my role model in that. I'm nowhere near what he was. But he was a genuinely humble man. And so when people would criticize him, he would listen to it and then he'd go say, God, separate it out. Maybe there's something I need to change. And he would continue to do that. But uh, those things that were chaff he never bothered him. And he'd go out and preach just even more vigorously the next day if it was just a satanic attack. So as he continued to preach, I mean, there's really, uh, um, at this point, uh, you know, one trip after another, he's evangelizing in England and Scotland and Wales. He's evangelizing and, and uh, he goes and preaches at Harvard. This is one of my favorite stories. He preaches at Harvard and many of the professors there get converted, which is no small thing. Even back then it wasn't, it wasn't small, but then there was also some opposition as well. People starting to write uh, in opposition to him. Um, but as he's going, his health is getting weaker and weaker. And uh, finally, I want to read to you what happened at the end of his life, and then we're going to talk about a couple other topics um, and how he died. He made his seventh trip, seventh and final trip to the colonies. It was a difficult voyage, 1769, 1770, somewhere in there. 
He arrives in Charleston. He preaches for 10 days as much as his physical health will allow him. Uh, in May of that year, he began a tour from Philadelphia. Uh, he could not preach as often as he wanted to. Um, he was just sick. Finally, on September 29th, um, he's in New Hampshire and he's preaching his final sermon. I want to read this uh, section of this chapter. After preaching for a week in the Portland area, Whitfield was again forced to recognize that he was too sick to proceed as he had, had intended to Canada. He wanted to go to Canada. Accordingly, he once more turned southward to begin, as he thought, the long journey back to Georgia. The date was Saturday, September 29, 1770. By noon of that day, he reached the town of Exeter. He had not planned to preach there, but on arriving, found that he could not refrain from doing so. That is, an outdoor platform had been erected and a large company of people had gathered and were waiting to hear him. As he made his way toward the assembled congregation, an elderly bystander, quote, observing him more uneasy than usual, said to him, Sir, you are more fit to go to bed than to preach, to which Mr. Whitfield answered, True, sir. But turning aside, he clasped his hands together and looking up spoke, Lord Jesus, I am weary in thy work, but not of thy work. If I have not yet finished my course, let me go and speak for thee once more in the fields, seal thy truth, and come home and die. Isn't that amazing? And another gentleman who was present wrote, Mr. Whitfield stood, arose, stood erect, and his appearance alone was a powerful sermon. He remained several minutes unable to speak and then said, I will wait for the gracious assistance of God, for he will, I am certain, assist me one more time to speak in his name. Now, how effective is that? I mean, it's not anything. He's just waiting for God to give him the strength to say something because he's about ready to die. But if you were sitting in that audience, what effect would that have on you? As this guy's just standing and saying, I'm waiting for God to give me the strength to speak. And then finally, he's got the strength. He delivered then perhaps one of his best sermons. I go, he cried, to a rest prepared. My sun has arisen and by aid from heaven has given light to many. It is now about to set. No, it is about to rise to the zenith of immortal glory. Many may outlive me on earth, but they cannot outlive me in heaven. O oh, thought divine, I shall soon be in a world where time and age and pain and sorrow are unknown. My body fails, my spirit expands. How willingly would I live to preach Christ, but I die to be with him. And that's Paul's attitude, Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If God lets me live, I'll serve him until he takes me home. But when it's time to go, I'm ready to go. Whitfield's sermon on this occasion was from the scripture, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. That's Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. It was a two-hour sermon, two hours in length. Though preached under the disadvantage of a stage in the open air, was delivered with such clearness, pathos, and eloquence that many hearers stated it was the greatest sermon they'd ever heard from him. Following this tremendous effort, Whitfield continued his journey and late that afternoon arrived at the home of the Reverend Jonathan Parsons, pastor of the Old South Presbyterian Church at Newburyport, Massachusetts. That's about five miles from where I was pastor. I've seen his, his where he's buried. It's just a little thing down in the basement of a congregational church, a dead congregational church, sadly. You can go down there anytime and see it, and there's just a little plaque, and that's where his mortal remains are. Amazing. Anyway, I asked Mr. Whitfield, Parsons reported that while they were at supper, I asked Mr. Whitfield how he felt himself after his journey, and he said he was tired, and therefore he had supped early. He supped early and would go to bed. But by that time, the street in front of the house had filled with people. And as he began to make his way up the stairs, several of them were banging on the door, begging him to preach again. Unwilling, despite his weariness, to forego any opportunity to declare the gospel, he responded to the request and stood on the landing halfway up the stairs, candle in hand, preaching Christ. He was soon greatly alive to his subject. Where did that strength come from? You know where it came from. 
preaching Christ, and becoming heedless of time, he continued to speak till finally the candle flickered, burned itself out, and died away. That dying flame, that burned out candle, were representative that evening of the man himself and of his life. He went upstairs, laid down, and died that night. It's just an amazing life. And every day was like that. It was an unusual day. It was just day after day after day of preaching for Christ. Now, in the middle of all this, okay, we're going to come back to the middle of his ministry. He goes to America. He preaches the Great Awakening. Tremendous effect. People getting saved. Then he comes back to England and finds that his field congregation, the coal miners and all the other people that he entrusted to Wesley, were opposed to him and hated him. What happened? Well, Wesley preached a sermon on predestination and by name basically skewered him. All right, And he had hoped to handle that controversial doctrine a different way. He believed in predestination. It's a biblical doctrine. Wesley did not. And so you know, he thought that there would be some way to keep the unity of the movement moving ahead. But Wesley just couldn't take it anymore and he preached. And this is what... Um, this is what Wesley preached. This is Wesley's predestination sermon, very famous sermon. It is a doctrine full of blasphemy, of such blasphemy as I should dread to mention, but that the honor of our gracious God and the cause of truth will not suffer me to be silent. In the cause of God, then, and from a sincere concern for the glory of his great name, I will mention a few of the horrible blasphemies contained in this horrible doctrine. But first I must warn every one of you that hears as ye will answer at it the great at the great day, not to charge me as some have done with blaspheming because I mention the blasphemy of others. This doctrine represents our blessed Lord, Jesus Christ the righteous, the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth, as a hypocrite, a deceiver of the people, a man void of common sincerity. Such blasphemy this as one might think would make the ears of a Christian tingle. But there is yet more behind, for just as it honors the Son, so does this doctrine honor the Father. It destroys all of his attributes at once. It overturns both his justice, mercy, and truth. Yea, it represents the most holy God as worse than the devil. I can't even read this. I mean, it's just amazing. Represents him as worse than the devil, as more false, more cruel, more unjust. This is the blasphemy clearly contained in the horrible decree of predestination. And here I fix my foot. On this I join issue with every asserter of it. You represent, now he's speaking directly to Whitfield, and this is why they turned on him. You represent God as worse than the devil, more false, more cruel, more unjust, but you say you will prove it by Scripture. Hold! What will you prove by Scripture? That God is worse than the devil? It cannot be. Whatever that Scripture proves, it cannot prove this. Whatever be its true meaning, it cannot mean this. Do you ask, what is its true meaning then? If I say, I know not, you have gained nothing. That's about what Wesley did say. For there are many scriptures, the true sense whereof you nor I shall know till death is swallowed up in victory. In other words, I can't understand what God means by, you know, that he has chosen them in Christ before the creation of the world. I don't know what predestined means. In Romans chapter 8, when it says, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his... Yeah, and those he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. Basically, Wesley says, I don't know what it means, but you make God worse than the devil by teaching it. Well, there was a rift in the group, obviously. And how Whitfield handled it shows a great deal about his character. He responded first personally. He went to him personally, but Wesley wouldn't see him. He wrote letters to him, but Wesley wouldn't read them. He then felt compelled to respond because this had been a public sermon. It wasn't just preached. It was printed and circulated. So he had to respond. 
And then after much effort, especially in relating with Charles Wesley, the two of them were still good friends, uh, that the breach was somewhat closed and they were able, they're never really able to work together again because there was just a disagreement on that doctrine. The interesting thing though, toward the end of his life, end of Woodfield's life, they said, do you think that you will see Brother Wesley in heaven? And he said, no, I don't. And he said, why not? And he said, because he's going to be so close to the throne and I'm going to be so far away that I won't be able to see him. That's kind of Whitfield's approach. And I think for every four or five evangelicals that know Wesley, there's one that knows Whitfield. The whole thing should have been reversed. It was Whitfield that started the field preaching. It was Whitfield that paved the way in the whole thing. It was Whitfield that trained Wesley in how to do it. And it was Whitfield that showed the way in terms of um, handling this dispute. Now, on the doctrine of predestination, it's a difficult doctrine, but you sure don't do it that way. You don't get up in front of everybody and start hammering on somebody because they disagree with you on a controversial doctrine. So, what's that? Yeah. But at any rate, this is one of my heroes. I would, I would love to live like this, but I'm nowhere close. Uh, when I read that bold face thing in there about, um, you know, one thing I abhor is idleness, boy, that convicts me. You know, I look at his life and I compare mine side by side and I don't measure up, you know. And here's a guy that here's a guy that that knew he was saved. He wasn't doing this to earn his salvation. There was no question about that. He just wanted to serve Jesus. And I think about when I think about Whitfield, I think about the Apostle Paul. Remember the Apostle Paul said he said, I am already being poured out like a drink offering and the time has come for my departure. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Now, what is this drink offering? Well, it's a cup, probably of wine, and it was poured out by the priest on the fire. It's an Old Testament offering. And so he's a drink offering. And Paul's saying, in effect, I was poured out. And I am being poured out. I am being poured out. He'd been poured out all that time. All the beatings and imprisonments and rejection. The Apostle Paul I'm talking about. He was poured out for Christ, right? And Paul says, he's not done pouring me out. <laughs> it's kind of like he went like, like the Lord himself looked in, oh, here's some more. You see what I'm saying? So he's pouring Paul out and then he stops and then there's more and pour that out too. Right to the end. You see? And that's the way Whitfield lived his life. Poured out literally right to the end. And I think to myself, there's so much of a principle of reserving or holding back in my life. And there was nothing like that in Whitfield. Well, we're done for this evening. I don't know if you have any questions. I would like to have read a Whitfield sermon to you, whatever, but any questions? There's such a joy in serving Christ. What an exciting life this man lived. What experiences he had. And, and you know, I just, I can't wait to get to heaven and just say, well, I didn't do it quite the way you did, but I want to live it through you. Tell me your stories. I want to hear. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.